I love this, this topic that we've been spending some time on, this idea of relationships, because really life is a whole bunch of relationships. Everywhere you go, you are in the midst of relationships, and dealing with other humans means problems, and it means pain, and it means difficulties, and it's never really as easy as you sort of hope it would be. So we're going to talk this morning about um, a, a picture of a, a lie that I think we're being told in our culture. We're going to spend time looking at what the world is telling us is the core um, value of relationships, and we're going to combat that today. Let me pray for us as we get ready to jump in together. So God, thank you. Thank you that you are here. Thank you that you are with us. God, thank you that you care so deeply about the relationships in our lives. I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds. Would you help us to understand a mysterious passage that comes out of your word? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Take a quick look at uh, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 on your outlines. This will be sort of the anchor passage. We're going to come back to it in a little bit, but just look at how confusing this is right off the top. It says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. So this is a picture of marriage. They will be united, he'll be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Paul writes this, and then he says uh, a really interesting sentence. He says, this is a profound mystery. And if you are married or if you're considering the idea of two people becoming one flesh, you're going, don't get it, right? And so he says, this is a profound mystery. Then he gets back on topic and he says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So there's, there's a picture in our world, right? I, I'm a big movie fan. Every now and then I'll read a book. And there's this, this stuff going on in our world that's telling us what relationships are all about. Right, if you, um, if you are a fan of The Princess Bride, you guys ever see this movie? It is this charming, handsome man who is like the most lovable, most unbelievable guy who happens to be like a ninja sword fighter as well. And he can like beat up giant rats and things. And, and he's just in, this incredible man. And then uh, as the, at, at the face of death, he says this amazing line. He says, death can't stop true love. Only delay it a while. And every girl goes, ah, oh, that guy, right? Maybe you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire, where you've got this, this, this young Tom Cruise, and he uh, is, has an interest in this girl. I don't remember who she is. Uh, I really don't remember. And so she's in this movie. I only care about Tom Cruise. And so didn't he shoot people in another movie, right? No, so there's Tom Cruise, and he obviously has a relationship going with this girl, and he totally messes everything up, and then she's all hurt, and he wants her back, so he busts in the door, and she's having a Tupperware party, and he, he does this unbelievable speech, and then she stops him after this beautiful expose of love, right? And she says, you had me at single tear in that moment, right? And everyone goes, every girl goes, that guy's out there for me, right? Or girls, if you're under the age of 35, I could insert any line Ryan Gosling has ever said in a movie, and you're going, oh, he's amazing. So we have, this, we have this, this issue, because if you're single and you watch movies, uh, especially ones that are those kind of romantic films, you're looking at it and you're going, that guy is out there for me. He is somewhere, right? And if you're a dude and you're watching those movies, you're going, that chick is hot and she's out there somewhere. <laughs> I'm going to find her. 
If you're newly married, uh, you've been in maybe in a, in a budding relationship, you're, you're snuggling up next to that person right now, and you're thinking, I'm so glad I found you. I have found the one, and it's all awesome for a while. And then, and then if you've been married for a little while, you're looking at your spouse, and you're thinking, you are so lucky you found that person, right? <laughs> I am awesome. So we have a problem because there is a myth in our culture that life is all about finding the one. That really that God has created a perfect match for you. That where you are the yin, they are the yang. Is that what it is? Yin, yang? And they are this other person that you, just, that you are just made for. And they're out there somewhere looking out a rainy window, staring at the same moon you are. And your quest in life is to find that person. That really all that the dating and relationships is this quest to fulfill the fairy tale of your, of your youth. That you begin this mission of dating and going, nope, that's not it. You can't ride a horse. And then there's the, you're going, I don't know where that came from. But you're looking at these people and you're going, I don't think you're the right one. And you just begin this quest of finding the right person. And is this right? Is this really what relationships ought to be? Is this the point of life that we would go through and we would just check people off the list because they either fit or don't fit the the perfect picture of what culture is telling us relationships are supposed to look like. And so I I read a study uh, from a couple years ago called the National Marriage Project, and it was investigating why marriages are happening so much later in people's life and also why marriage is happening more frequently, meaning people are getting married and then getting unmarried and then getting married and then getting unmarried and then getting married and then getting out. So it's looking at this and going, okay, we have some kind of issue going on in our world. So they began a, a study trying to figure out why is it um, that people can't commit to one another. So they asked guys. They said, what is the issue? They said, well, I'm just looking for that perfect one. And they go, okay, describe for us the perfect one. And they came up with a powerful list of what men really want. So women, take notes. First and foremost, men want someone who is hot. Secondly, They're looking for some kind of sexual chemistry. I'm sure those go hand in hand. Thirdly, they're looking uh, for people that they can describe with wow words, right? So then there came this long list of just like these unbelievable words where they're they're gorgeous and they're beautiful and they're radiant and their teeth are shining white and all these kind of things. And then they start talking about compatibility. And by compatibility, men mean this. I want a woman who will take me exactly as I am. They will not ask me to change. They do not want me to grow. They don't want me to learn anything. And then they said, I just want a woman who will fit into my life. Bingo, gentlemen. That's how awesome you and I are. We, do, we just want a woman who will literally just move in to our mess, deal with all of the dirty laundry on the floor, deal with the half-eaten bowl of corn pops on the countertop. This is what we want in a relationship, a very hot, attractive woman who just lives in our presence. And doesn't want anything in return. (laughs) Gentlemen, that woman doesn't exist. I'm so sorry to tell you. She's not sitting next to you right now either. So then the study turns to women and says, okay, women, what is it that you want in a man? And surprisingly, it's not that much different. It's a little more sophisticated, but it's not much more different. Women want a man that is fun that is intellectually stimulating, which we have a problem there because every guy's going, what does that mean? So we're all out of that one. 
There is an obvious sexual attraction. There are uh, levels of common interest. Women want a man that supports all of her goals and dreams in life, is willing to accept me as I am, does not want me to change at all. And here's the kicker, gentlemen. A woman is looking for a man who has an uncanny ability to anticipate my every need. (laughs) Yep. And I'm here to tell you that that person does exist and my wife found him, so I'm very sorry. <laughs> not a chance, not a chance. So we have, we have a huge issue. If this is what men want and this is what women want, the core of it is a very self-centered consumer search for relationship. We are looking for people who will fit into my life so that I don't have to do anything differently. I want my dreams, my goals, my bank account, my future. I want all of that, and guess what? You get to come along with me right? The problem is that's what women want too. They want you to just hop on their train and go through all these different things. This is consumer, right? We live in a consumer culture. We understand going after things, buying things, desiring something and figuring out how to get it. We consume everything around us. There is a huge problem in our world if we look at relationships like we are, that they are something we can consume that we can buy and earn and achieve and go after something. This is a huge problem because at the end of a consumer culture, if you went after relationships like a consumer, I could guarantee failure and destruction and deep, deep pain, right? Think about a popular television show in our culture called The Bachelor, right? This is a picture of a consumerist's take on love. Here is a guy, a charming man named Sean. He's he's huge, massive muscles and bleached blonde hair and he's this outdoorsman the masculine of all men and he's on a quest to find love his perfect match his soulmate so what should we do let's scour america with with um pieces of paper to find his perfect compatible mate and what will we do we'll find 25 women and put them all in a house together and he can date them all at the same time it's a it's a fast forward of speed dating he can just date them all and find love and realize nope that ain't her that ain't her and just vote them off the island it's amazing and what will happen at the end of this failure destruction pain it's a train wreck every week if you talk to people they they do believe that if if we really loved each other that it really shouldn't be this hard right like, we have this, this picture in our brains that if I found the right person, if we loved each other enough, that it shouldn't be difficult. It should just be easy. Every day we're just giggling and rainbows are in our living room and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, the, I don't know. It's just this really horrible picture. But I've never, I've never, I, I played a lot of baseball growing up. I've, I've, um, I, I used to love baseball, now I find it very boring. But uh, you never hear a baseball player complaining about how hard it is to hit a fastball. Like, they never look at this and go, it's just so hard. Man, this should be a lot easier. No, they don't because it's part of the job. They sign up to play baseball because of the difficult nature of, of, of hitting a fastball or a curveball or a knuckleball or whatever else. They just know that this is going to take work. So why should love be any different? Why is it when we enter in relationships, we just think this should be easy. This should be no work at all. They should just become who I need them to become, right? Really, don't we all crave deep down inside of us a love that is worth fighting for, 
a love that requires us to become better people, a love that requires us to pay attention to other people's needs more than our own. We all crave this. You crave it in your friendships. You crave it in your relationship with maybe your own family members. You crave this in your workplace. You, cra- you crave this in a, in a spousal relationship. We all crave a love that is worth the effort. And what I love about this is that the Bible gives us a really clear picture of what that love is. And on your outlines, I put a a contrasting definition of what love might look like. The first one is one that we're very familiar with. It's this idea of a contract. We are in contracts all of the time. We live in contracts. Listen to this definition. A contract is a legal agreement that summarizes an understanding, which means this. As a, as a two parties come together, we set out the terms of the contract and we say, this is what it will take. If it's a cell phone bill, you will have this many minutes. You can sp- send this many text messages. You can download this much data on your phone. You will pay us on this month. And if you don't, this will happen. You will do this for two years until the iPhone 6 comes out. You will sign up another thing and then you will re-sign a contract. Contracts say that we understand that things will change that circumstances will change, financial situations will change, the market will change. That's why we will bind you to the agreement we will sign today so that no matter what happens, you have to live up to the contract. Now imagine if this was in your relationships. Imagine if you started hanging out with somebody and you said, okay, this, is, this date's going pretty well. Here comes the contract. And you lay it out on the table at Red Robin. And you say, you know, put the fries down for a second. It's time to go through some terms, okay? You will never gain weight. Your parents will never move in with us. We will have 2.5 children and a golden retriever. You will always care for me. You know what I mean? Like, and I will be able to shop at Forever 21 whenever I want to. This is what my wife says. And so you, there's these, imagine if that was the contract. And then at the bottom of the line, if the, the guy or the girl looks at you and says, I could deal with that. And then they sign an agreement. And then years later, through all the relationship problems and through all the conversations, if there was ever a moment where they were in breach of the contract, they pulled it out and said, hey, you remember what you signed? You remember this agreement? You're breaking it. Now, because of that, you get to do this. This is a huge problem. We understand contracts because we are surrounded by them in our life. Stop surrounding them in your relationships. You don't have to do this. Look at what a covenant is. A covenant is a pledge on God's part of what he will do for you or for what God will do for his own people. If you look back into the Old Testament, there's a beautiful picture of covenant relationship. It is God being the creator of the universe Nothing equal, nothing in comparison, nothing will ever be greater than God. And he looks at the nation of Israel and he says, you are my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. He says, this is the picture of covenant relationship. It will be unconditional. There is nothing that you can do to earn or destroy this relationship. He looks at the nation of Israel and he says, there is no way that you, and I know what's about to happen, there is no way that you can take away from the love that I'm extending towards you. And in fact, he says this, I will pledge it on my own name. Because if I asked you to pledge it in your name, meaning sign your name on the dotted line, it would be completely worth it, worthless. Because if I asked you to do that, I know you'll fail. He goes, there is, because I under, God understands you and me and human nature, we will fail. We will never live up to what God expects of us. We will never do that. So that's why God does not extend a contract to us. God extends a covenant because he says, you will fail and I love you anyway. He looks at his people 
And he says, let's enter into a relationship on my own behalf in which I will care for you. I will love you. I will defend you. I will protect you. I will guide you. I will lead you. And you just have to follow me. That's it. That's all there is. Now, here's the issue. I cannot, in, a, in 20 minutes, explain and help you understand in your brain what a contract, I mean, what a covenant relationship looks like with God. It will not make sense because we live in a contract consumer culture. But what I hope to do this morning is that in some small way, help you feel an invitation to experience God's covenant love for you. Because if we can do that together, you will leave different. You will leave transformed because you will understand the love that God has for you. And I believe that can radically transform the relationships of your life. So look at these few verses. This picture of God loving us looks like these four things right here. Jeremiah 31, 3. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with an unfailing kindness. Covenant love will never end. Covenant love draws us to God. Covenant love is a love that is filled with unfailing kindness. Look at uh, John 3.16, a passage most of us have heard before. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Covenant love is a sacrifice on God's behalf. Covenant love is looking at you and saying, I will give my Son so that you may have life. It's a beautiful picture. Look at what Ephesians 1 said. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Covenant love is God choosing us. It is not us choosing God. Covenant love is that we were a thought before even the creation of the world. Covenant love is a before kind of love. It is a love that says, you will you will fail, you will destroy, you will falter, and I will love you before any of that. And it is an everlasting love that will continue to love through that. Covenant love is beyond anything that any of us could ever understand. Look at 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Because if it was contractual love, he would have never sent his son. Because if it was contractual son, we would have never lived up to that contract. If it was contractual love, you and I would be on our own with nothing to offer because we are broken, we are sinful, we are damaged people. And yet, it is covenant love. And it is not a love that is determined on you and me going to God. It is a chosen love that God spoke into being before you and I were ever created. He says, I will love you. He chose us. And then in that first John, he says, now that, that, um, but, but, that he has loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Atoning is this picture of covering. That anything that we do, that we think, the things that we act upon, that is covered in the, in the person of Jesus. That he is the one that provides life for you and I. This covenant love, again, is something that I, I literally could not explain to you um, in just mere words. It's something that has to be experienced. Think about the Gospels and the way that Jesus portrayed covenant love. 
There's a story where there's a leper, a man that's riddled with disease and sickness, so much so that he is outcast from society. He is not allowed to be with the people of his own community. And so he is sent aside, and Jesus has mercy on this man. And he approaches him, the one that no one wants to be around, the one that everyone has rejected, the one that is carrying around the weight of his own physical illness. And he walks up to him, and he touches this man. That probably hasn't been done in years. He touches him and he heals him. That's covenant love. There's another story where Peter, who'd been following Jesus for years, who had spent his life, um, you know, growing up as a good Jewish boy, then all of a sudden getting the opportunity to follow a rabbi around, he follows Jesus and Jesus says, hey, you're going to deny me. Peter says, no, I won't do that. Sure enough, he does. And then afterwards, after Jesus is, is resurrected from the dead, he's having a conversation with Peter. And he looks at him and he restores him before Peter could ever prove to him that he won't do it again. He looks at him and says, you are forgiven. It is okay. I love you anyway. That's covenant love. There's another story in the New Testament where a woman is caught in the act of adultery. And she is being um, hurled insults at her. People are destroying her. She has made a very public mistake. And right at the moment where people are about to kill her for her actions, Jesus walks up and completely forgives her before she ever decides to follow him. That's covenant love. Perhaps you identify with one of those three people. Perhaps you are sitting in here and you are one of those people. God loves you. God wants you. God cares for you. God is with you. You are not in a contract with God. You did not break the contract because you could have never actually lived up to what you would have had to sign. You are in covenant relationship. You see, we don't understand this because in our relationships, we think that people have to earn relationship. They have to earn love, right? They have to deserve it. They have to accomplish it. They have to buy it. Whatever it is, we have a misunderstanding of what relationships at at their foundation are all about. They are not about earning, deserving, buying, or anything like that. So what is it that you're actually looking for in a relationship? In your own life, with your coworkers, with your family, with your friends, with your spouse, with the person you're engaged or dating, what are you actually looking for? Are you hoping for a contractual kind of relationship? Or deep down, do you know that the only way to make it is to have covenant type of love? Look at this passage that we started with, Ephesians 5. This is the big chunk on the back. Um, Listen to what Paul is trying to explain here. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing um, with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Then he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's saying covenant love is a submissive love. It is the one that looks at one another and says, out of mutual love and concern for one another, I submit to you. He uses this word to be united. It's a picture of being glued together, to be bonded as if one body. 
The connotation here is that we would enter into a covenant love together. But here's the deal. It's not a covenant love with one another. It is a covenant love together with God. It is that you and I could never approach a covenant love with one another because you can't love somebody in that way. You are broken too. It is that you and I would join together. It's actually a beautiful picture of marriage if you think about it, that two people come together and they enter into covenant together as one flesh with God. God being the greater party. God being the one that extends the love. God being the one that will care for, love, protect, and all this kind of stuff. You are together in this with God. It's a beautiful picture. You see, the problem in our day is not marriage. The problem isn't marriage. The problem is actually you. It's not your spouse. The problem is you. Sit with that for a moment. Think about it even in a broken relationship with a friend or someone in your family. How are you perhaps the problem? When you think about going to a wedding, you never sit in the audience and look up at the couple getting married and wonder if they love each other. This never crosses your mind. I was at a wedding a couple, um, a couple weeks ago, and I was looking at this guy. He's a junior high pastor at the Irvine campus, and he's crazy. He is loud. He's a guy that's like, I think he should have been a car salesman, but he, you know what I mean? Like, he's crazy. He's insanely, uh, like, hyperactive and stuff. So he's now getting married, and he has told me for the last four months how many days left until he gets married. Like, he's that, he's that guy. And so uh, he's just easily excitable and all this. So he's standing up front, and he's, like, giddy, like, doing his thing up front. Just, oh, man, I can't, I'm getting married right now. This, this is happening right now, like this kind of a guy. And no one's sitting in the room looking at him going, I wonder if he loves her. I wonder if those two love each other, right? That's never a question in your mind. Now, perhaps you could be sitting at a wedding and you don't doubt if they love each other. You might doubt if they're good for each other. You might doubt if they're going to make it. You might, you might have these other doubts, but you don't doubt if they love each other in that moment. You see, the vows that they make in front of friends and family, a married couple, is not vows for today. It's not in sickness and in health today. Like, it's not, how are you feeling today? Because I'll love you for that. Like, it's not, it's not in, in, you know, if we're richer or for poorer, in the, like, like, right now. Like, you got a lot of money, and I love you right now for it. Well, maybe it is. <laughs> Perhaps. But the point is that the love that they are professing, the vows that they are making, the promises that they are stating are not actually for today. Because love is very easy on the first day of their marriage. It comes naturally. They would have never gotten to that point if it wasn't for love. The love and the vows and the promises are for the future. They are making promises that says, when we get rich or when we get poor, I will still love you. When you gain a little bit of weight or I gain, I will still love you. When you go crazy, I might not, I still will love you. When you go, right? You are making promises for some time in the future. You are saying no matter what, This is something that you and I are committing to. And then you say, I do. I will be your husband. I will be your wife. You are making a a covenant relationship with God in that moment to say, whatever happens from this point forward, there will be an everlasting, unfailing kind of love. It is a love for the future, not for today. And I understand that all of us in some way have experienced a broken relationship of some kind. Um, Perhaps you know, at that one end of the scale, it's just a broken friendship or something damaging between friends. On the other end, maybe all the way as far as divorce and something as painful as that. When we live in a contract world, you will fail. When you live in a contract relationship, it's doomed from the start. 
But you know what? There's always room for grace. There is always room for mercy. There is always room for forgiveness. That's the point. That covenant love is not contingent on your actions. Covenant love just is. My fear is that some of us will walk away and forget what it is that we're supposed to, how we're supposed to love. Paul in this brilliant passage, he says, you want to know how you love someone? You love them like Jesus loved the church. Philippians 2 is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible because it paints a beautiful, it's a beautiful poem of what Christ did for us. That he left his place in heaven at the right hand of God to descend, not just to become a human, but to become a poor child of a peasant parents in a no-name town. There is no greater distance that anyone has ever traveled in the scope of history. And Jesus did that for us. He surrendered his position, and he became like a servant, right? Mark 10 talks about how, how Jesus came to serve, not to be served. What if we loved each other that way? What if you and I realized that relationships, if we could love like Jesus loved the church, I think we would be okay. That we could actually extend forgiveness and grace in the way that Jesus did. What a beautiful picture of covenant over contract. You see, life cannot become a journey to find our soulmate. You will lose. You will fail. Perhaps if you view your life as this contractual consumer journey, eventually you'll want to chase something different. Eventually a newer, greater model will come out. Eventually that spouse is no longer going to feel like a fit anymore. You're going to wonder if you made a mistake. It's time to turn them in for a new one. That's contractual thinking. This is not covenant thinking. What does your life amount to? Think about it. Is your life about your, your accomplishments? Is your life about your bank account? Is your life about the fulfillment of all of your hopes and dreams? Is life just about your feelings? Or is life actually about the promises you make and the promises you keep? My wife watches a show um, called Parenthood. You guys ever see this show? I'm too busy watching Bachelor, so I don't have time for Parenthood. But uh, <laughs> there's this, uh, just kidding, there's this beautiful storyline in there of this, um, this, this couple who have a daughter, but they're in the process of adopting um, a young boy, probably around seven or eight or so. And it is this really painful interaction between this, this boy and then the, the mom who's, who's a, a kind of in this adopting relationship. The kid is incredibly defiant, very rebellious, hurls words at them all the time. And when he's not hurling insults, he's giving the silent treatment. He's refusing to look at. He is this this picture of pain in this lady's life. It even gets to this one scene where um, she's up in his room and does something, pulls on the comforter or something like that, and as a result, he falls off the bed. And it's just this deafening silence that takes place where the kid looks at the mom and says, you're you're abusing me. And the mom looks at him and says, you know that was an accident. But there was no words. And then the next scene, the cops show up because the kid called and proclaimed child abuse. And all of a sudden, this adoption process is just in turmoil. The dad wants to continue with the adoption. The mom, who is the brunt of all this pain and rebellion, all this kind of stuff, she is questioning if it's the right move anymore. And you just look at this kid and you think, oh, the pain that he must be experiencing, all this stuff. And the mom makes a profound decision. She says, if I don't love this kid, then who will? If I say no to this adoption, he'll just go to the next family and the next family and the next family. 
continuing to live in this pattern. You see, she had to do far more than just say, I will love you. She had to actually take the step and say, I will adopt you. And in the show, it's this amazing scene of this whole family coming together. I'm getting like emotional thinking about this. This whole family coming together in this courtroom and making promises to this kid that you know that they will fulfill. They are making promises that they intend to keep. And that's where you and I are. We are rebellious. We are broken. We are running away at times. We are trying hard and we are failing. And God looks at us and says, you are mine. I love you. There is nothing you can do to prevent, to stop, to obstruct my love. I am God and you are mine. It's a beautiful picture of you and I being adopted into a family that makes no sense unless you would experience it for yourself. The only reason I know that this covenant love is real is because God can love someone like me. And what's amazing is you can say the same thing if you know that God loves you. Think about your own life. Are you, at times, treating your relationship with God like it's a, like it's a contract? Like, God, if I do these things, you will do this for me. God, if I just live this certain way, you will bless me or all this kind of stuff. Are you treating God like he's in a contract? Because I can promise you that won't work. Because the contract that God would have for you, you wouldn't even begin to fulfill. God looks at you and says, contracts are unnecessary because I have a covenant for you, a covenant that understands who you are uniquely and says, I love you anyway. A covenant that says, I love you despite. A covenant that says, I will always love you. Think about your relationships, your friendships, the people in your family, your coworkers, your spouse, whatever it is. Are you treating them like contracts? Are you binding people to terms that they need to live up to? How are you treating people around you? What if, what would it take, what would it look like for you to attempt this covenant type of love with people. Not a covenant where you are greater than somebody else, but a covenant that says, what if we entered into covenant together with God at the center? Could that change something in your life? Could your marriage actually look different beginning today? Could your dating future be on a different path rather than on this quest for a soulmate? What I'd love to do just in these next few moments is to proclaim powerful words about God. Proclaim that God actually is at the center of everything. That he is the one that holds everything together. Not because he has to, but because he loves you. Let me pray for us and we'll sing these words together. God, would you, in these next few moments, would you hear the words of undeserving, broken, people? Would you hear our words and accept them as holy and pleasing worship to you? God, in these next few moments, would you be with us as we proclaim powerful truths about you, that you hold everything together? And God, would you, beginning this morning, be at the center of our lives?